Amen. Redeeming love will be our theme until we die. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at your word, I pray, Lord, that you would open it to us. Help us to see the struggle that you went through to get to the cross. And I pray, Lord, that as we realize what happened on the cross every day of our lives, Lord, help us to understand that it is your redeeming love that uh, saved us, undeserving, hell-bound sinners like us. Thank you, Lord. We praise you for it. And we, Lord, we ask you to teach us more about it until we are consumed with it and that our mind is the mind of Christ. I pray this, this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles, first of all, to Luke chapter 22, verse 53, and then I'm going to be looking at several passages this morning. I'm going to be going to to Matthew uh, chapter 2 and 4, and and then, then to Hebrews. But this morning, my title of my message is, When Darkness Reigned. When Darkness Reigned. In this passage in Luke... The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse number 53, it kind of pulls back the curtain for us, and it shows us the in- intense emotional anguish that Jesus had been in while he, he was praying uh, to the Father in the garden one Thursday night outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And this is what it says in verse 53, While I was with you daily... In the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour, the hour of darkness, are yours. And this literally communicates, actually, in this passage, that this is your hour, the power of darkness. In other words, there was a particular time in history in which darkness would exercise its power to rule. And the word power here means authority or authority exercised by rulers, ruling powers. So behind the darkness is a personality, in other words. Behind the darkness is Satan. That God and Satan were at this moment in time engaged in a crucial battle. Why? Well, Jesus had been preparing to make a sacrifice for sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow and anguish really swept over him where it tells us in Matthew. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And then he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Some people are a little bit uh, confused about that statement. But Jesus was speaking from his humanity. The pressure of everything was coming upon him in that, at that particular time in history. The anguish came from more than one place, though. Actually, in actuality, the Father was beginning to withdraw from him. That was from a large part, feeling the Father withdraw from Christ. They had fellowship intimately for eternity. So now the Lord was feeling that, and he didn't want it to happen. He didn't want that departure to happen. Along with that was the cup of God's full wrath against sin that was poured out on Christ. But for Jesus really to endure the coming suffering, all the horror of death without communion with the Father, is actually experiencing what it means to be in hell, isolation from God. From Jesus' birth to the start of his ministry, and through his three-year ministry, the arch enemy, the prince of darkness, opposed Jesus' suffering leading to crucifixion and death. The prince of darkness undoubtedly 
hated Jesus because he knew to some extent, we don't know the extent he knew it, but he knew to some extent the purpose of Jesus coming into the world was to save his people from their sins and also from 1 John to destroy the works of the devil. So I want to look at the Word of God this morning. Take your Bibles now and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Because we're going to look at, for instance, the attempts in Scripture where Satan tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. That Satan's darkness is visible through the pages of Scripture in order to prevent him from offering the perfect sacrifice for sin. That the fingerprints of the prince of darkness were evident all over the place. And in this particular place, the first instance is found where King Herod makes a decree to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. And if you notice in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which was determined from the Magi. In other words, he was hoping to destroy in that lot of babies the baby named Jesus. So this was an attempt behind the scenes, the scenes of darkness, to destroy. And of course you see the length that it had gone through, Satan had gone through to, to try to get to Jesus. And of course Jesus was not amongst those babies because the Spirit of God had sent him somewhere else already. And so Satan spent most of his energy and repeated attempts to keep Jesus from making the perfect sacrifice. Here's the second place in Scripture, and turn now to Matthew chapter 4. In verse number 16 of Matthew 4, it says this, The people who were sitting in darkness now saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light had dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the people at that time were steeped in spiritual darkness. Even the religious uh, element of the world was steeped in religious darkness. And yet Jesus is now going to be tested for his ministry, and so Satan's darkness again is clearly seen in the wilderness temptations by offering Jesus the easy way out. In other words, he's saying to Jesus, listen, you don't have to pass down this difficult road of suffering and death and the cross. You don't have to go there. I'll offer you something easier, an easier path. So the purpose of Jesus being led into a lonely place was for the purpose of being tested in chapter 4 the means uh, this means that immediately after Jesus commissioning the evil one tried to turn him aside again from the will of God and the evil one even regularly today tries to oppose and lead God's people off the correct path off the narrow path to, to, to seduce them into some evil service. But let's look at each of the temptations that was presented to Jesus, three of them. And the first one in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 2, it tells us here that the first attempt in his temptation, in his testing, was to get Christ to abort his mission. And it says in verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Remember, Jesus, this is presenting his humanity, that he is now very hungry, the Word of God tells us. So Jesus, in his fast of 40 days and nights, communing with the Father, uh, now didn't even start his ministry yet. He's been tested to start his ministry. And so fasting, remember, is a picture 
of laying aside some essentials, such as food, and focusing the attention on God and doing some seriously, serious thinking and seriously, seriously petitioning God for things. It's precisely at that moment. It's at the moment of weakness. It's the, at the moment of fatigue that the tempter comes to tempt. He tempts to do what is wrong. He tempts with some aberrant, attractive alternative against what is actually true, what God actually said. And his suggestions are lethal. And so he comes and he gives a little twist to the language. He gives a little twist to what God said. And he comes with a subtle blow at a very vulnerable time in a very vulnerable area and that's where Jesus is at now. If you look at verse number 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Now, Jesus could command the stones to become bread immediately and satisfy his physical hunger. It would be simply a matter of, of Jesus using his power to meet his own need. But remember, Jesus laid aside when he came into this world his independent exercise of deity, of his power to do things immediately. And so what he does is that he came to lay those things aside so he can live a frail human life. It was, it's like what Paul says in Philippians, he made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man or men and being found in human form he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross in other words it was not time for Jesus to display his deity it was time for Jesus to display his humanity and the strength that God had given him in the spirit to perform what he was about to perform as a human being. So how did he answer him in verse number four? And Jesus answered and says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus responds back to the evil one with Scripture. See, that's where the power laid. Not in his ability to do miracles or to display himself as the second person of the Trinity, but to show that in the Word of God is the power to resist the temptations of Satan. And so that's what Jesus does. He responds by using what? By using Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 3, where it tells us there, he humbled you, talking to the people of Israel, and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand what did God want Israel to understand back then that man does not live by bread alone but by, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord that what God says is life is power so in Deuteronomy Moses was reminding the Israelites that God humbled them by making it necessary, necessary for them to live on manna instead of on food they provided for themselves or on food that Egypt provided for them. See, that's why they're in the wilderness. When you're in the wilderness, you have to depend on God. There's no water unless God shows you where it's at. And there's no food unless God gives it to you. So see, to learn how to depend on God is the point here. And Jesus, in his humanity, is learning to depend on and being tested on his humanity to not give in, but to allow the full brunt of what hunger was for a human being and not give in to anything else. So Jesus gives really the correct sense of the passage he sees clearly a life sustained merely by physical food alone is a life that has missed its real purpose. So Jesus chose the Father's will that 
That is to depend on God and refuse, refuse to violate this commitment by miraculously sustaining his hunger in the wilderness. So he refused to work a miracle, to avoid personal suffering when suffering was part of God's will for Jesus. And it starts right here. So Jesus passed that test. He did not give in. But there's a second temptation. Satan doesn't give up quickly. There's a second temptation in verse number 5. And this temptation is more subtle than the first. It's another dark attempt to get Christ to abort his mission. It's another offering of the easy way out. And so it says in verse number 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. That this structure here where Satan leads Jesus to the temple, most likely uh, Herod's royal portico, overhung the Kidron Valley, and overlooked some uh, 450 feet down. So the evil one challenges Jesus, and he says in verse number 6, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. So see, to make Christ prove that he claimed that he stood by every word that came from the mouth of God. And if you notice, Satan, what does he use? He uses Psalm 91. Satan is quoting scripture. Another reason to read the Word of God and know the Word of God, because if he's read it, then he could twist it in a way that could cause you to fall, right? So we ought to read the Word of God because he read it. Psalm 91 says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. He quoted that, and so Satan basically said, listen, jump. Throw yourself down. You are guaranteed protection. You know, if you believe God, then throw yourself down. He will come. He will send his angels concerning you, and you will not even strike your foot against a stone. So in a sense, he was saying, isn't that trusting God? But remember, that would be an attempt to preempt God's plan. See, Satan may have been suggesting that the sight of angels rescuing Jesus from certain death would impress the masses around the temple, and they would instantly accept him as their promised Messiah and believe in him. So there don't need to be any suffering and death. Just do that, people will see a miracle, and they'll believe you. Now, we know from the Gospels, we know from the book of Acts, that miracles don't convince people of much, do they? They convince, but not all the time. And so, Jesus, again, what does he do in verse number 7? He appealed to Scripture to ward off this assault of the enemy, and he appealed to the only accurate guide for conduct and the basis of faith and he says in verse 7 on the other hand it is written you shall not put the Lord your God to the test what is he quoting here he's quoting from Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy in this passage that Jesus quotes it says this Chapter 6, verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. In other words, something went on there in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, that the Old Testament scriptures reveal the truth of the matter, that such presumptuous action in putting God to the test is not faith at all. It's not trusting God at all. It is actually doubting God. 
as, as Israel did in the wilderness. He, they doubted, actually doubted God could supply their needs. In fact, Israel in the wilderness went to this extent where they says this in Exodus. They quarreled. There was a quarrel among the sons of Israel. And it says, because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They didn't believe in God at all. They actually doubted him and presumed that God should do something for them when they wanted it. And so that's why Jesus' response to Satan, um, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am the one who's really trusting the Father. I am the one who's, who really has faith in the Word of God. I am the one who is actually doing the, ro- the right thing. So actually, God... Uh, Actually, they actually said if, if God does not do what we demand then there is no God among us see that's the temptation that's the test that in the time of weakness where does Satan want to attack he wants to attack to doubt get you to doubt what God said get you to actually twist to believe his twist on the scripture or his interpretation on the scripture and not God's intention of the scripture. So he passed that one. And then there's still another temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. This dark attempt was to get Christ to abort his mission and keep him from the cross again, where it says in verse number 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory see that's what he did he said all right satan from some kind of a occult power flashed in an instant um the mighty realm of his rule the mighty realm of his kingdoms and he wanted to entice christ to again say why, why would you have to go to the cross I'll just give you the kingdoms I'll give you it I've been given that authority so I'll give it to you so the devil presents as something very attractive very enticing these things to the Lord and in verse number 9 it says and he said to him all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me see this is where satan takes people he takes them to the place where what he ultimately wants is for you to bow down to him to worship him that's what he wants and he even says here i will give you does satan ever promise what he's going to give does he ever does he ever dangle things in front of you and says listen if you do this i will give you this many rock stars many musicians say in their songs I've sold my soul to Satan to get where I'm at today well many people sell their souls to Satan because they don't believe in the God who created the heaven and the earth they don't believe in Jesus Christ and that somehow by some guy dying on the cross in Jerusalem in ancient days is going to do anything for me now So the devil is acting like God in this passage of Scripture, and he appears here as the prince and the ruler of this world, and he presents himself as someone who can actually deliver on his promise. And because Jesus was weakened in the flesh, this is a great and a very powerful Temptation that the devil offers the glory and the rule of the kingdoms of the world to Jesus Christ in exchange for just a little worship. Just a little worship. Not, not, not much, just a little. So Satan's proposition is this, that God has turned all these kingdoms over to him and he will willingly turn them back over to Jesus if Jesus will place himself under me and just one little act of worship that's all I'm asking I'm not asking much 
by one simple act of worship, Jesus would become a rebel against God and a fool in the hands of the devil. So this is a temptation that also presents the easy road, that God will instead... achieve all the kingdoms of the world how through God's ordained method through a long bitter road of suffering and finally death on the cross so the repression of this assault is found in verse number 10 of chapter 4 of Matthew that Jesus responds to him as the Lord gives a very strong command here that Jesus will have nothing to do with Satan's position or his person. And this is the final, this, he gives this final blow from Deuteronomy chapter 6 again. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And this is a very strong statement here from the Hebrew. It means that Jesus strongly with authority rebuked Satan from this passage of scripture and humbled himself under the plan of the father so Jesus said to him go Satan go for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only so Jesus again in the power and the weakness of his flesh wins over but the attempt all these attempts was to keep Jesus from the cross. Every single one of them was for that. He did not want him going there. In fact, Satan says, okay, if that doesn't work, he comes back, he, he, he leaves, he'll be back again, he'll come and tempt again. Well, there's a, an instance in Scripture where he, he does exactly that. If you look over to Matthew chapter 16, well, Satan now tries, well, I'll try his close friend, his, his close companion. I'll work through him and maybe I could do something there. So in Satan's darkness, again, his, this is very clearly seen in speaking through Jesus, Jesus' friends, his close friend and ministry companion. So somehow he could bypass this difficult road of suffering and death on the cross. So here is a conversation that describes an attempt by Satan to influence Christ through the words of a close friend, through, through the words of a companion. And it happened at the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. Peter, remember, Peter, a faithful, uh, faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, an outspoken disciple of Jesus Christ, and he makes a great confession in Matthew chapter 16, and this is his response. If you notice what it says there, verse 16 of chapter 16, Simon Peter had answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So here in this passage of Scripture, this great pronouncement that, that uh, is made by Peter in this passage of Scripture is, is, is incredible. But, of course, it was only revealed to him from heaven. It wasn't something that you can come up with just with human knowledge. It had to come from there. And then Jesus began to share with his disciples uh, his mission. And it says in verse number 21 of Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day that's what he is saying and it seems like at this point at the end of his ministry that the disciples would have gotten it that Peter would have been there and understood his, the whole point of him becoming a man look what Peter does in verse number 22 Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying what? God forbid it Lord this shall never happen to you. What is, what is he talking about? Going to the cross, suffering and dying. This will never happen to you. Well, look at how Jesus responds to Peter. 
with a very severe response in Matthew 16, verse 23. It says, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me. Who? Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. See, Peter had unwittingly become a tool of the devil. So the devil through him could dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. So he is going to use relatives and friends and close acquaintances to tempt. He still does it. He's good at it. I don't know if you've experienced that already. You, you probably have. But all these efforts failed. Brethren, the fact remains in Scripture that Jesus did empty the cup of God's wrath against sin. He did do that. He did complete his suffering. He did fully accomplish the redemption of his children on the cross of Calvary. He did all that. He accomplished it. He defeated Satan. He passed the test. And he finally went on to the cross. Now, I'd like you to just move over to Hebrews chapter 2 just to give you at least three or four things about the suffering and death that his death accomplished for his children. And remember, as just keeping Hebrews in mind, that Hebrews is speaking of the excelling greatness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus is anointed above all others. That Jesus is God the Creator. He is the Eternal One. He is the Unchangeable One. He is given the highest place in the universe. He is the object of God's final revelation, therefore vastly superior to all beings created, visible and invisible, and all persons who have ever lived and all things in the universe. That's who Jesus is. See, Jesus had to become a man. He had to be made lower than the angels. He had to suffer a particular kind of suffering and die a particular kind of death. It's just like it says in Hebrews chapter 2. But we do not see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that Jesus, as the high priest, fully participated in the humanity of all men. So he entered into humanity from the cradle to the grave and everything that is human. That Jesus came to earth as a man to redeem mankind from its fallen state and regain mankind's destiny. How, did he, how does the Lord our God accomplish this? Well, only by the design of Jesus' suffering and death could the grace of God save hell-deserving sinners. Many things were accomplished on the cross, but Hebrews brings out four things. The first one found in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse number 10. The first thing was this, that Jesus' suffering and death blazed a trail to bring us to a place where we could not we could have never reached on our own. In verse number 10, he says, For it is fitting for him, for whom all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So see, Jesus could not bypass the sufferings. He could not bypass the cross. That was the very will of God. So by virtue of Jesus' suffering and death, he achieves the crowning glory for himself and the crowning glory for us. That I and you can go to glory because by the grace of God, that is God's blessing in Christ towards helpless sinners who only deserve his curse, we can go to glory. That the creator and the ruler of all things fittingly use suffering to make him complete and the author of our salvation. And so in the passage of Scripture, 
Here it says that he, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. This, this word perfect means to accomplish, to bring to a goal. It's used in this way in, of an animal which is unblemished, fit to be offered as a sacrifice, as in a scholar who no longer is in the elementary stages of his career, but is mature. It's used of a human, human being, or an animal who is full grown, or it's used of a Christian who no longer is a spiritual baby, but has grown from a, from a baby to maturity. See, the basic meaning of this word here in Scripture has to do with carries the purpose for in its design so so that so what it means is that it is saying here that through suffering Jesus was made fully able for the task of being the pioneer of our salvation he was fully prepared for that and the second term is that he was he would become an author here in in this passage to perfect the author of their salvation that here used as a leader or a founder here this this word means uh, that he begins something and then he accomplishes it for something else for example he, someone who begins a family someday others would be born into it or someone who founds a city in order someday people would actually live and dwell in that city so this particular word author is used of one who blazes the trail for others to follow some one has used it in this way that suppose a ship is on the rocks and the only way to rescue it is for someone to swim to shore with a line and then secure the line that others may follow see that the first one to swim to shore will be the author or the archegos there in scripture and then allow others to come to safety that this is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says that Jesus is the author of our salvation, that Jesus blazes the trail to God for us so we can follow him. That's why you must follow Christ. By his humanity and his humiliating death on the cross, it enables Jesus, when he dies physically, to pay the price for his children so that individuals could be redeemed and reconciled to God by following him. That in a sense, he is the captain of our salvation. That's what the death of Christ has done. That is the, the accomplishment for us. The second thing in verse 11 through 13 is that Jesus' suffering and death sets us in a relationship we could have never entered and a family we could have never been a part of on our own. We couldn't have never done it on our own. And what does he say in verse 11? For both he, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. And then he says, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That here in Scripture, Jesus becomes one nature with his children. That Jesus sanctifies his children and makes them holy, that Christ and his children have the same human nature so that Jesus is able to suffer for them in the flesh and then his children are able to benefit from his sufferings and are made holy by him. And then, to the point where he's not, he, it says for this reason that he's not ashamed to call you brethren. He's not ashamed to say, that's one of my kids. They're in my family. They believed in me. They followed me as the captain of their salvation, and now they are one of mine, and I'm not ashamed of them. I'll never be ashamed of them. They are my family. Jesus did not do this with angels. He did not do this with anyone else, that Jesus had to stoop down and become our brother in the flesh. He stooped down to lead many sons to glory. And so what does Jesus do? He acknowledges that by God's appointment, we are his children. He says it again in John chapter 17. I have manifested your name to men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. 
and they have kept your word. See, all believers are children of God because the Father gave them to Christ. See, we are family. And it's an amazing thing that God's not ashamed of us. It is an amazing thing. And that was an accomplishment of his death on the cross. That was an accomplishment of him becoming human. And so you have the divine and the human come together and accomplish what could have never been accomplished for you and I. We could have never done this on our own. That's why it's, it's so absurd to say or believe that someone has some kind of personal plan of saving themselves. It could never happen. Once you read Scripture, you realize it could never happen. We could have never saved ourselves, ever. There is no other plan than this plan. And so Jesus suffering, thirdly, his suffering death subdues the reigning power of the prince of darkness. See, that's what happens, that all this comes to a place where Jesus Christ subdues the reigning powers of the prince of darkness. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you notice in verse 14, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And then the rest of verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So see, Jesus' weapon to secure victory over Satan and over death was the weapon of the cross. That the power of Satan had been rendered at the cross inoperative, ineffective. It could not do what he intended for it to do. That Christ has made an atonement for sin, fuller, fully satisfying to God the Father, fully appeasing his wrath, and also that the fear of dying that has long plagued humanity, that Christ has settled that problem also on the cross by his death and his resurrection, that Satan's power of death has been annulled for those who are united to Christ and are his children. It has no effect upon us. We may die physically, yes, but we cannot die the second death. We cannot die eternally because Jesus Christ already took care of that. We are going to live eternally. That Satan's authority to condemn and punish forgiven sinners has been made void because, void for them by his cross that God had already judged, condemned, and punished all our sin in Christ. Has he not? There are no other... Uh, there are also other places in the New Testament that shows how Christ disarmed him. Like in John, it says the ruler of this world is cast out. And then in Colossians, when he had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In other words, by the cross, that by his atoning death, he delivers from the power of Satan, from the fear of death in verse 15 of Hebrews 2, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their, all their lives, that the fear of death is connected to the sinner's guilty conscience. That's where the fear comes from because people know they're guilty. They, they know that they're guilty before God. Everybody knows they're guilty before God. Everybody knows they sinned and their conscience is guilty. And so... Satan hovers, uses that to keep people in darkness, that the guilty conscience really senses that God's wrath and punishment is deserved, that they will be judged by God someday, but the infinitely valuable and all-sufficient blood of Christ removes believers, all their sin, and causes them to be clothed in his perfect right, righteousness, thus cleansing their conscience. That when we come to Christ, our conscience is cleansed. And if you don't know that, well, the scripture does tell us that. In fact, 
Hebrews goes out of its way to make that point where he says in Hebrews 9, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God? For what reason? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then again he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. From what? From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the Lord wants us to make sure that we know that when we come to Christ, that we are perfectly made clean before the Father. That we are given His righteousness. That in Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ becomes the victor of our salvation. He is the one who fought the greatest battle and won the greatest victory, and we are on His side. And He wanted us to know that. So Satan hasn't won. That the the reign of darkness is not, is, is actually defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, the Lord really adjusts our view and understanding of death when Satan is, is taken down like there. This because in even Scripture, what is death to us? Death is really gain. If I die, if... Paul, remember, said it's to, for me to live as Christ and to what? To die is gain. Death is what? To depart is to be with Christ, right? To be absent from the body is to be with Christ. Also, I know I have eternal life. Why? Because I have come to Christ. In fact, the word of God is written. These things I have written to you that you may know you have eternal life, right? He wants us to know we have eternal life and not eternal death. Also, it enables us to endure a life of suffering. That if my Lord suffered, I may suffer. Uh, because of the curse of sin, there will be suffering. Because Satan is still active in the world, there will be suffering. But, see, suffering is not the end. Eternal life is the end. Being with Christ is the end. It also enables me to treat going to funerals differently. If I go to a funeral of a loved one, it's a celebration. It's a victory. Uh, because Christ has earned life for me. He's given me eternal life, and so we can celebrate that. Why? Because really the death of a believer is an usher, ushers us into the presence of God. So see, this is the benefits that come to us because Christ won the victory. He stood against the enemies of darkness with the gospel of light and won. And of course, the last one, which I'll not mention much, is that Jesus' suffering and death enables him to help and sympathize with us uh, as frail human beings, that he's our high priest. He prays for us now. Uh, and so if I go back to the Garden of Gethsemane for a minute, that Jesus pleaded to the Father to rescue him from death, where he says, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, our text is saying, really, that Jesus did not merely sip the cup of death, but he drained the cup, undergoing all of death's bitter dread. He took it all. Do I understand that? No. I'm understanding it more and more as I read the Word of God, but I don't understand it fully. And I think that's the point. If I did understand it fully, it would be pretty human. It would be a human teaching. But because of what God done, Jesus accomplished everything needed to complete and finish our salvation. To me, that's a, that is the, a point of rejoicing, that Jesus had been tested to the zenith and remain faithful and therefore is perfectly qualified to help those who are also tempted. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So scripture is really saying to us that Jesus can sympathize because he has gone through the same things that we go through and even to a greater extent he is our high priest it says in Hebrews chapter 4 who cannot sympathize who it says, well, we, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, that Christ's
personal experience of temptation suggests. It suggests this. That this help includes the strength for a person to stand firm in the face of their own trials. And particularly to stand firm in those temptations which Satan will tempt you to be disloyal to God and give up your Christian profession. And he will do that. And he will get you to bypass the cross too. He will get you and I to try to say that didn't mean anything. It doesn't really do anything. It's just an old musty religion, that's all. He'll lie to us in any way possible to get us to bypass the cross, just as he did Jesus. But if you are a believer today, you know you cannot bypass the cross, right? You have to go to the cross. And you go to the cross with all your sin. Don't go to the cross or attempt to go to the cross thinking you're going to clean up your act first and then go. No, go to the cross with all your sin, all your filthiness, everything that you know you've done and things you forgot you've done, but God knows you've done. All right? Go to the cross with that and you will find complete cleansing. You will find complete forgiveness. You will find a God who loves you. You will find that the fountain that God has opened up for you can never be stopped. That's what you'll find. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've grown in the Word of God, you know that is true. You know that is true. So Satan was defeated at the cross. And Christ won the victory by his death. Darkness no longer has a chance. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do ask you, help us to see the precious truth about the cross. Lord, don't allow us to give in to the lies and the twisting of truth of the enemy. Don't allow us, Lord, to give up our profession to lay it aside as if it's not precious. Lord, help us to hold to it, to hold to the truth, to know that our God cannot lie, and to know that His death has accomplished everything for us on our behalf. And Lord, thank You that You are not ashamed when we follow You as the person who blazed the trail into the presence of God. You're not ashamed to call us children. You're not ashamed to call us into your family. Thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, use these things today to strengthen our faith. And for those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior, today they may come and follow you so they can receive what you offer to them at the cross of Calvary. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.